Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Several more listeners have written to ask me to continue telling the stories of All My Presidents, the series I'm updating from its first transmission on the BBC in 2016. As I've said before, I like hearing from listeners and try to take on board your suggestions. So visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and drop a line. Tell me what you'd like to hear, and while you're there, make a donation. Okay, commercial done. Here goes. When I was 30, I got my face kicked in. Literally. I was playing in a softball league in Washington, D.C. I was catching and there was a play at home plate. I turned to tag a guy out, and instead of trying to slide underneath my tag, the normal thing to do, the player elected to run through me. I turned, and his bony knee caught me flush on the cheekbone, crushing it and much of my left eye socket. The next day, as I was being wheeled into surgery to have my face reconstructed, I had a moment of panic. All the doctors, interns, residents, attending me on the gurney were around my age. I didn't trust one of them to have the experience to help the senior attending plastic surgeon. Beyond that, I had friends who had got through medical school on a variety of pharmaceuticals. I was frightened the one holding the retractor while the doctor flushed the pulverized bone out of my cheek and stitched titanium into its place might have an acid flashback while I was under anesthetic and screw everything up. Maybe you've had similar feelings as you've grown older. Not about drugs, but the idea that people your age are taking on powerful positions, whether in the physician's consulting room or parliament or the White House, and it makes you wonder about their suitability for such responsibility. You know they are probably as flawed and immature as you are. A decade later, living in London, working as a cultural reporter, I had that moment related to politics. The first George Bush had been elected president in 1988. He was only a little older than my father. His vice president was Dan Quayle. Quayle would have been a senior in high school when I was a freshman. The Quayle was the first of the children of victory, those of us born in the years after the war, to get so close to the Oval Office. It gave me a great idea for a television documentary, Inside Dan Quayle's Brain. The vice president was constantly being lampooned for his lack of intellectual heft. I thought this might be down to the fact that he was the first person so close to the presidency to go through childhood with television as a constant presence. This was a huge shift in the society and culture. The idea was to match up Quayle's silliest statements with extracts from 50s and 60s American television. The false reality he absorbed watching those shows might well explain his easily mocked worldview. I hooked up with a veteran television producer, Keith Griffiths, who got Channel 4 in the UK's commissioning arts editor to give us money to go to New York's Museum of Broadcasting to troll through hours of archive footage to see if there was enough there to sustain the idea for a 30-minute slot. 
One of the first programs we looked at was called Beulah, an early sitcom that translated the racist archetype of the wise black servant, the mammy, into a 50s white suburban setting. The title character, Beulah, was the maid. The suburban family she served looked like one in which the vice president might have grown up. In the first scene we watched, Beulah brings dinner to the table silver service, the main dish covered by a silver dome. One of the young family members asks, Beulah, what's for dinner? She lifts the cover off the dish and says, Quail. Keith and I whooped. This was a sign from heaven. The program was going to work. The day we were scheduled to go in and sign contracts at Channel 4, Keith received a fax from the editor saying he'd lost interest in the project. Inside Dan Quayle's brain joined the long list of brilliant ideas I have not been able to bring to fruition. It also helped propel me away from the overly precious world of cultural journalism into hard news, just in time for Bill Clinton's presidency. Of all my presidents, Clinton was closest to being one of mine, another child of victory, one with gifts of intellect and charisma and political nous totally absent from Dan Quayle. Clinton took office in a brave new world. Elected in 1992, he was the first president in almost 75 years not to have the Soviet Union and international communism to contend with. But this epochal change, the end of the Cold War, didn't necessarily enhance presidential power. The collapse of the USSR in 1991 had sent the Republican branch of Washington's permanent government into paroxysms of triumphalism. America had won. History was at an end. Of course, it wasn't. Clinton came to office with new, unexpected restraints. Domestically, he encountered a Republican Party that had decided the collapse of communism meant it was time to finish off socialism in the U.S. Definitions of socialism are decidedly baggy in America. Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal had been considered socialism by conservative Republicans since its inception, and they had spent decades trying to unravel it. Clinton immediately tried to extend and deepen the New Deal by creating a universal health care system for Americans. The Republicans squashed it, and the following year rode voter skepticism about Clinton to control of Congress. Their leader in the House of Representatives, Newt Gingrich, was not shy about saying his goal was to make Clinton a one-term president. His method was to elevate non-cooperation with the White House to a matter of policy. Internationally, the fall of the USSR had not led to millennial peace. Soviet communism had kept the lid on nationalism in Central Europe since 1945. Now, countries created by treaties signed after the First World War and preserved in the aspect of the Soviet Empire after the Second began to disintegrate, in the case of Yugoslavia, with extreme violence. The Yugoslav Wars had begun while the first George Bush was president. He was happy to stay out of them. His Secretary of State, James Baker, said, We don't have a dog in this fight. Clinton took office with horrendous scenes of war dominating the evening newscasts. All of the foreign stuff affected me. By then, I had more or less found my purpose. 
I was a hard news journalist covering conflicts, conflict resolution, and the disintegrating marriages of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's children for National Public Radio. And reporting these events for a news organization listened to in the White House brought me closer to Clinton than any of my presidents, and eventually to one of my prime ministers. My primary story through the Clinton years was the political process in Northern Ireland, tortuous, frustrating, unsatisfactory, and ultimately successful. It really wasn't a peace process. It was a search for a political agreement that might allow a space for peace to take root. Clinton was late asserting U.S. power in the Balkans. He missed Rwanda completely. His Middle East peace plans were shattered when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. But in Northern Ireland, he played a blinder, deploying presidential power at the right moment, consulting with the British and Irish governments, taking small risks when they couldn't take big ones. In early 1994, for example, the U.S. granted Jerry Adams of Sinn Féin, the IRA's political wing, a visa so he could attend the annual St. Patrick's Day celebration at the White House. John Major's government were not pleased, but it was a giant step towards detoxifying Adams, and a few months later, the IRA declared a ceasefire. Senator George Mitchell's appointment as special envoy to Northern Ireland in 1995 also angered Major. But power is power. Clinton used it discreetly, and Mitchell turned out to be the right person for the job. I covered all the twists and turns of this story. I spent months of every year in Northern Ireland. It was a story that interested American listeners, and I was on the air a lot. In the summer of 1995, I was summoned to NPR's headquarters in Washington to fill in as host on Weekend All Things Considered. I dropped a note mentioning I'd be in town to Nancy Soderbergh, deputy head of the National Security Council, Clinton's point person on Northern Ireland. We'd had some off-the-record conversations by phone, and she invited me round to the White House for coffee. I would be lying if I said that giving my name to security at the 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue gate didn't make me feel a little bit important, nor would I be telling the truth to say that when I ran into a colleague and did the D.C. journalist name drop thing, oh, I'm here to see Soderbergh, I wasn't gratified by the look of envy and astonishment. Nancy Soderbergh was a somebody, a somebody the folks in the White House press corps didn't have ready access to. Our conversation was fairly anodyne. She seemed particularly interested in my take on Sir Patrick Mayhew, the Northern Ireland secretary at the time, but it was more than gratifying to be in conversation, almost peer-to-peer, with someone who met the president regularly. What I said might reach his ears. Seductive, I thought. I could do this. I would be lying if I denied that I daydreamed a little about being summoned to service to bring my field knowledge and outside-the-box perspective to the Clinton White House, to the center of power. Of course, presidential power is an illusion. The president didn't have the power to create a settlement. He could only help create conditions where negotiations were possible. Shortly after my White House visit, the Northern Ireland political process was becalmed. John Major had taken giant steps, but could go no further. His own domestic political problems had him focused elsewhere, and it's possible 
that having had personal friends murdered by the IRA meant he could never take the final steps to making a deal with Jerry Adams. In any case, the provisional IRA broke their ceasefire and blew up Canary Wharf in early 1996, and that was it until Tony Blair won his landslide victory in 1997. Suddenly, the political process went to the front burner. The White House back channel crackled. Mo Molum, Blair's Northern Ireland secretary and one of the bravest women in politics, she carried on in her job as a tumor grew in her brain, went to the Mayes prison in early 1998 and cut the Gordian knot. Paramilitary prisoners on both sides would be released. The U.S. then asserted itself. George Mitchell put a clock on negotiations. Midnight on Good Friday, 1998. Finish the deal or we're done. Midnight came and went. 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Several hundred members of the press from around the world were trapped in a makeshift structure next to castle buildings, an office block on the grounds of Stormont, home to Northern Ireland's parliament. The deadline was passed and they were still talking, although what they were talking about was beyond any of us. The details of the agreement had been known for weeks. Actually, the broad outline had been known for years. The principle of consent. Ulster, Northern Ireland, would remain part of the UK so long as it was the wish of the majority of its people. So simple. A united Ireland might someday come, but not tomorrow. Sinn Féin would have power in a devolved government. Still, there was hesitation on the Unionist, the Protestant side. Weapons. The IRA had to decommission the weapons. The sun rose on Good Friday. The negotiations were still going on, but the caterers the government had laid on to feed the international press had packed up and gone home. A few coffee urns, and that was it. At noon, a couple of American colleagues and I wandered off in search of nourishment. A policeman at the exit to the press enclosure told us there was a McDonald's by the main road once you were off Stormont grounds. How far? About two miles. It was bitterly cold, a four-mile round trip for a Big Mac. Our faces contorted in disappointment. The cop took pity. I shouldn't tell you, but there's a staff canteen round the back. You could go in there. Don't tell anybody else. We went and restored ourselves with fish and chips, and on our way out of the building, who should be coming in but Tony Blair and Mo Molum? Blair looked as disheveled and disoriented as a student who had pulled an all-nighter preparing for an exam. Molum looked none the worse for wear. We called over to the Prime Minister, and he looked at us, recognized our faces from press briefings, but couldn't quite place how he knew us. We didn't remind him. We just started asking the obvious questions. What's the delay? How much longer? What's the sticking point? He began to confess things were not going well. Molum, who knew precisely who we were, took him by the elbow and laid him away. A little while later, maybe just after our little interaction, Blair asked Bill Clinton to call David Trimble, urging him to take a final leap of faith. There were many people who did more important work in bringing the Good Friday Agreement to fruition, but Clinton's call sealed the deal. It also sealed an idea in Blair's mind, I think. The U.S. president can do extraordinary things, and Britain, working with America, can make the world better. 
a year later, with the Balkans set to ignite again over Serbian aggression in Kosovo, Blair stood shoulder to shoulder with Clinton as American Britain led a NATO force in bombing Serbia. Humanitarian intervention became the defining idea of the brief post-Cold War era. I would love to ask Tony Blair if he had the same feeling the first time he visited the White House that I did, that sense of being at the hub of power. I wonder if he remembered as he flew to Crawford, Texas in April 2002 to visit the next of my presidents, George W. Bush, the success he and Clinton had enjoyed in Kosovo. I'm curious if he thought an American president's ability to seal the deal came with the office, not the man. I think that's where you will find a large part of the answer as to why he rashly promised Britain would join the war to overthrow Saddam without asking to see a detailed plan for what happened next and not demanding that Britain have a full voice in the decision-making process. It may explain why, as the occupation unraveled, he stuck it out with Bush, even though he must have known that history will remember him more for his role in the failure in Iraq than the success of the Good Friday Agreement. And I wish he had asked me about the presidents of my generation, actually, our generation, the children of victory. I'd have reminded him that Clinton and Bush were as flawed as any other people we might have been at high school or university with, as prone to error. Holding the office doesn't change that. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. A reminder that I will be traveling to the U.S. just before the election and will be filing a daily first rough draft of history diary. If you'd like to make a contribution to that work, you know where to go. www.goldfarbpod.com. Click on the Donate tab. Thanks.